This episode of Story Institute's Ramblin' Verser is brought to you by Timeless Tales. We bring you travel and fun, creating new stories in your life. Enhance your stories now. If you let yourself be guided by what happens in the bookstore you will never have confidence enough to write. You have to write what you think is worth writing. Well, hello there, and welcome to Story Institute's Rambling Verser Podcast, Episode 1. The voice you just heard was that of our special guest today. It's Walter H. Hunt. He has written such books as The Dark Wing, The Dark Path, The Dark Ascent, The Dark Crusade, and more recently, A Song in Stone. He will be sharing with us a little bit about his writing style and, and his writing career. We thank Walter for, for all his efforts. You can find more of Walter's work at www.walterhunt.com. So sit back, relax, and enjoy the show. This week's quote is brought to you by Oscar Wilde. Good resolutions are simply checks that men draw on a bank where they have no account. And no account is exactly what we had when we started this podcast. However, using the power of the internet, we were able to gather some, some great authors to share a little bit about their writing experiences with you over the next couple months and, uh, and give you a little hope uh, to publishing, to writing, and to creating your stories uh, that mean the most to you. A great place to start with a story is through a simple poem. While we don't have the space nor the time to bring you the complete John Brown's body by Stephen Vincent Benet, we wanted to share with you a couple verses to reflect on as you listen to the interview from Walter H. Hunt and the writing prompt we have at the end of this, uh, this podcast. American Muse, whose strong and diverse heart so many men have tried to understand, but only made it smaller with their art because you are as various as your land. As mountains deep as flowered with blue rivers, thirsty with deserts buried under snows, as native as the shape of Navajo quivers, and native too as a sea-voyaged rose. Take some time to do some research on Stephen Vincent Benet's poem, John Brown's Body. Uh, he It was a long, epic poem on the Civil War. Uh, even though uh, Benet was rejected from the army because of defective vision, you will see vivid imagery uh, throughout his poems and, and great, uh, great sh- storylines. If you're a poet, look for the same type of imagery that Stephen Benet brings. If, if you just like dabbling with verses, uh, look for the sense of language that, that you'll see within his poetry and in his short stories. As we mentioned a few moments ago, our featured interview is with Walter H. Hunt. Uh, Walter had uh, volunteered uh, graciously to share a little bit about himself and his writing. Unfortunately, the, the interview was, uh, was a very great conversation, and it, it went quite, uh, quite long. So what you get here are, are questions about, uh, about writing in general. Uh, Walter was gracious enough to answer, um, but since some of the audio, we're still working out some of the details on it. Uh, some of the audio on our side uh, was a bit uh, was a bit quiet, so we tried to interject so that you have separations and breaks along the way. Uh, if it's if it's a little tough to to listen to, go ahead and send us an email. Um, but again, we apologize for that. Hopefully, uh, it doesn't detract too much from what uh, Walter has to share with us. 
One of the first questions we asked Walter was about his new book, A Song in Stone. And uh, he shares a little insight as far as how he came up with the idea and uh, what it means to him today. When I first started working on song, it was as a result of having visited Rosslyn Chapel, which is in Scotland. It's about six miles from Edinburgh. And we were in Scotland for uh, the World World Science Fiction Convention, the 62nd Worldcon, which was in Glasgow. We had arranged to go to Edinburgh, and uh, one of the things we wanted to do there, one of the things I wanted to do there, was to go to see Rosslyn, which, in addition to being the last place that you see in the Da Vinci Code uh, book, is also uh, historically significant for various other reasons. And I thought it would be cool to see it. And there I am at, at Rosslyn getting a tour, and all of a sudden my guide says something which gives me this enormous inspiration and Next thing you know, we're you know we we wind up in Inverness, but suddenly, I mean, it was it was planned. We wind up in Inverness, uh, and we're plotting the novel. My wife and I are plotting the novel, and it just rolled from there. The idea of having something that I hadn't been working on for you know twenty years suddenly being the most important thing I was writing was a very unusual experience. I didn't know what I what I was going to do, but I went ahead and did it. And part of that is having confidence in your own ability to execute something. And part of it is the knowledge that if you're interested in it, it must be interesting. You have to believe in your own writing. And it's very, very easy to have that knocked out from under you. What I write about things, I write about what I find interesting and very often it's, it's a question of something from history. We wondered whether it was a good idea to focus on just one project exclusively or having multiple projects helped with, with writing style and, and breadth for, for, for readers. Walter had this to share with us. I have projects in the air right now. I have a book set in the 19th century, which I've actually finished and is, and is in limbo right now. It was bought. Though I've written two short pieces since I had this long conversation with Howard Taylor at Denver Worldcon. Yes. Let's get back to that. King and Country is an alternate history novel, which is based on uh, based on a diversion from history some 40 years before what would have been the American Revolution. Uh, so I have that. And then I have work in the science fiction universe, which I've developed over the course of years. And then I have a sequel to A Song in Stone, which I've written 40,000 words. And the good thing about this is that when I feel like I can't make progress on one project, I can move to the, to the next project. So I have sitting on my table uh, research material on New York in the 1750s, a book on uh, phrenology, which is me- reading the bumps on the head, which links in with mesmerism, which is the 19th century book. Uh, I have a fully developed three-dimensional map of the area nearest to Saul, which is for the prequel to the science fiction universe. And I, and I have all, all of these things, <laughs> all these things in hand. And, and then I have uh, some uh, developed work on uh, on music and architecture, which I'm using for the sequel to Song and Stone. So I'm always reading new stuff that I might be able to use one place or another. And amazingly, uh, my daughter accused me of you know, never reading anything for entertainment. But in fact, I find all these things entertaining. And 
I move from thing to thing and take notes and and look stuff up and read and and sometimes these things start to overlap with each other, which is pretty scary too. Walter shared with us what's known as an elevator pitch and how important it is to get your ideas down into a simple uh, message that that people and editors can understand. You get in the elevator with an editor who can't go anywhere else, and he or she will listen to your pitch. But if you get to the ground floor and you haven't convinced them that they should go and sit in the bar with you for 10 minutes, your elevator pitch has failed. (laughs) And and it's hard. It's it's hard. You have to – it means that – uh, and somebody was telling me, uh, Lawrence Schoen, who's a very good writer, who I know from East Coast uh, conventions, uh, Lawrence and I were talking about this. I said, well, he, he did his writer's conference where he had this exercise. The exercise was write a, write a story in 5,000 words, then rewrite the story in 2,500 words, and then rewrite the story in 1,000 words. Maybe it's, it becomes less of the story, but see if you can give in 1,000 words Everything that happens in the story that takes 5,000 words to write. When you do an elevator pitch, you start off with whatever your pitch is, and then you get it down to 100 words, <laughs> which, is, which is nothing. You have to say what it is you're, you're doing. Well, that, that not only goes to the attention of, uh, of the, the publishers and the, the editors, but it goes to the attention of the audiences sometime. Uh, we, we were talking even earlier about you, know, you, have to, you have to get in with that first chapter. If that first chapter isn't... It right. isn't intriguing, isn't it? It doesn't evoke some type of emotion. You're kind of just sitting there waiting for something else to happen, and you give up. Yeah, yeah although there's there's the infamous page 117 test. Smart Alec, smart Alec readers will do this to you. They, they particularly like doing it to you when you're standing there. They'll pick up your book, and they'll say, I'm going to turn to 100, page 117 and see if it's interesting. You know, it's like, well, thank you. Okay, go ahead. Yes. And then some, and and it's always gratifying when they turn to page 117 and then they flip over and look at page 118 because they actually are interested. But you know, you never know. <laughs> but that's you get that too. So as our conversation continued, we move toward uh, the competition and how steep it is and and who it really is in the writing world and the book selling industry. You realize you're competing not only against not only against other writers of your of, of your magnitude, but you're really competing against writers who are way out of your league. Every fantasy writer is competing with J.K. Rowling. Yeah. Everybody who writes everybody who writes science fiction is up against Scott Card or or uh, you know Robert Heinlein or something. I have the advantage of being on the same shelf as him and Frank Herbert. Yes, but I'm also on the same shelf as Tanya Huff and Robin Hobb, and uh, and they do pretty well too. People are are very open to the idea of new authors who do what they do, because they don't feel that that tends to divide the market. If you read reader, if you read writer X, you may be interested in writer Y and buy his or her books as well, rather than coming down to a choice between writer X's new book and new writer Y. If you if you read all of X while you're waiting for George R. R. Martin to write his next book, <clears throat> you're willing to read somebody else who who evokes the same sort of emotions or follows the same genre as George R. R. Martin. Yeah, and George R. R. Martin is perfectly fine with that. It's a very non-competitive environment, and the, the fellow writers in my in my genre are very welcoming. It's it they're a great they're a great bunch by and large. That you know there are exceptions, 
to every rule but but really they're they're very good about finding another slot for another writer who does what they do and they like that their sales aren't hurt they're often helped it's like one more book so, so, is it, so is it good for a writer to have somebody tell them who they remind them of as far as style, or would you recommend that they go out and, and look look for those comparisons themselves as well? There's nothing wrong with being compared to somebody. I mean, I've been compared to, to, to Scott Card, which is great. I've been compared to C.J. Chera. I've been compared to Hornblower, my early books, you know, C.S. Forrester. Yeah. How complimentary is that to be compared to Tolkien or to Herbert, which I've been compared to? Uh, but a, a new author mustn't assume that they should follow the, in the tracks of, a, of an existing author. Don't try to be the new anybody. There are a couple reasons for that. First, to try and be the new J.K. Rowling or the new whatever, the new Isaac Asimov, if you like, tends to obscure whatever actual talent you have, whatever your whatever your style, whatever your voice is, if you try to be somebody else's voice, you're probably not going to do it as well as they do. You're better off finding your own voice. Right. Second, following a trend that is popular now is fruitless because you, whatever, you, whatever you finish, if you finished it today, it's not going to hit a shelf for two years. Or maybe a year, depending on the speed or the, the, the delivery vehicle. So what you have to do is write like something that's going to be popular in two years. And that's very hard. <laughs> that's practically impossible. <laughs> so, Well, unless you're a mind reader or, you know. You, or something, you know. <laughs> you're lucky and you, know, you find that leprechaun underneath the house, maybe. Lucky is good. Yeah. <laughs> My first novel, Darkwing, was published in 2001. And... The, the the story in brief is there's an alien race that wants to destroy us because they have a religion which tells them that we have no right to exist. Now, the book came out in hardcover in November 2001. Timing, as they say, is everything. It was, and I, of course, you know, I didn't write it about Al Qaeda. I wrote it about the Zor, or yes. aliens who have this religion. Uh, but because it resonated, it did very well. But I didn't write it in 2001. I wrote it in 1987. It took me 14 years to get the lucky break that it came out at just the right time. So, so I wasn't following a trend. I wasn't writing to the writing to the to the, you know, the headlines of the day. Yeah. But it's the same as well, I mean, it's considerably rewritten and reworked and edited and so forth from the book that it was in 1987. But in essence, it's the same story. Do, it is. Do you have do you have a few of those storylines uh, tucked away somewhere? You know, when you need that that, that <laughs> small bit of inspiration that you could just pull out, maybe, and and then well, from that. <laughs> well, I mean, you mentioned King and Country. You mentioned the alternate history novel. Yes. Um, here's a classic example of um, an elevator pitch that I've had to to learn to change. Well, this wedge event, this you know fulcrum event that you can use to to produce an an alternate history timeline in which the American Revolution isn't even considered. And I'm pretty happy with that. My agent said, well, you know, I want you to know that no one cares. <laughs> <laughs> no one wants to know why you wrote the book. They want to know what happens in the book. The story is what happens between point A and point B. And, oh, and by the way, Prince George's guide is Benjamin Franklin. 
you've mentioned that history is a is a big importance for you, and that's where you find quite a bit of your inspiration and some of your focal points. Uh, yeah, is there any, lots of periods I'd like to write about, and I haven't yet. And that's a great thing about history is that there's so many points that you can either research or go back to, and you don't have to create an entire universe, but but you can you can work with what's there and just modify it slightly so that so that it intrigues you as a writer, but also uh, brings in the reader at the same time. People think history is boring. Not not everybody, obviously, and not all history, but there are people who think history is boring. My answer to them is they've been taught it wrong. Yeah. Not only that, but they miss the essential, the essential secret of why history is interesting. And here it is. History is not about places and dates, facts and figures. It's not about events. It's not about wars and peace. It's not about anything but people. History is about people. And if you want to tell a story which is historical, you need to find the people who tell the story for you. Find that, and you find your story. But you have to find that person around whom the historical event revolves. You have to talk about people, and you have to give people the, the center stage when you tell a history, wh- whether you're writing a fictional or a non-fictional account. So, so how, do you, uh, how do you choose your character? So you know, people are very important, and you go back and you look at some of them. How do you choose them, and how do you choose the, the personalities that they, uh, that they portray for you? Well, in, in the, 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 no, the novel in Limbo, which is the thing I wrote last year, set in 1885 in Paris. And I chose 1885 because that was the year in which Sigmund Freud was in Paris. And... The principal character, however, is fictional, and I evolved him as I went. I wanted to have I wanted to have a point of view character who was a doctor because it's about a it's about well it's hard to describe exactly what it's about. If I were elevator pitching, I'd have more trouble. But I had to write a I had to write a one page summary when I pitched the novel, which means I wrote five hundred and thirty four words and made them small. You know, changed the font size. And I think if you know you're on the right track things fall into the story and you feel that they fit. And if you put something in the story and it doesn't fit, that will reveal itself to you. And I think that's, that's a matter of experience. The more you write, the more you understand what, what belongs and what doesn't belong. When you said something interesting there, as far as letting the characters uh, grow and develop themselves, you know, <laughs> as you're writing, I think that, that it also may involve experience. Without it, some writers, especially early writers, tend to force their characters to be whatever, uh, whatever they're thinking of at the moment, which means that they don't, uh, they don't grow. They, they, they just, they're just flat. And, uh, oh, yeah, there's a third dimension, sure. Yeah, yeah. The, the, my fashionable doctor starts off get one thing and winds up another. He has, at various points during the story, he realizes that he's completely, that he's he's winding up in places and doing things that he never would have expected to do and to be. And, and, and I have to let him experience that. The thing, about, the thing about this is that unless you're under an enormous deadline, you can go ahead and do things and then think, well, this isn't working. You can cut it, paste it into a file just in case you need it later because you never throw anything away. But it's okay to go down to go down blind alleys. It's okay to do things that you later decide aren't aren't the right things. 
experimentation is okay unless you have no time. And if you're not writing to deadline, you have time. It's it's perfectly all right to write something and let sort of let it happen and then decide later that it didn't work. The the person who wound up being my editor at Tor, his first comment on the first draft of it was, if this is going to be a war book, it should really have some more war in it. Go write some battle scenes. So I did. Um, but and it wasn't long enough, and he told me that. But what's interesting is that every every novel I wrote for Tor, I added chapter one to it. From the time at which we started till the till the time at which uh, got published, every single book of the four wound up having a new introduction wow. that wasn't there when I originally wrote it. Well, and that's and that's just, just weird. Yeah. Well, and and that's your experience as as a, as a as a writer is just making sure that that it tells the story, but also that 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 first chapter really does mean something, so that you can get to that uh, before you know somebody does the where they turn to hundred page seventeen, as, as you may have mentioned earlier. So. Yeah, and it's hard to, uh, but but it seems like you know in my my experience is that I've I've. I'm trying to get away from the, the point at which I seem to start the book at chapter three. You know, it's not a bad chapter three, but it turns out to be not the place where the book starts. Right. Um, the uh, the Paris novel was not like that. Song and Stone was not like that. What wound up happening there is the first chapter got split into two chapters, but it starts where I thought it would start. It starts with a phone call. <laughs> The other thing is that uh, we haven't haven't even mentioned uh, your website. We've mentioned uh, quite a few of your books, and you know when we think about uh, authors in general these days, everyone seems to have some sort of website that 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 they try to showcase most of their books. And I think yours does a does a great job. It's it's WalterHunt.com. Yes, thank you. Uh, it does, I think it does a great job in depicting your books, giving a summary, but also going back to the comments that you've received, either in writing and email. Uh, whatnot from 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 your readers uh, how important is that to you to get that type of feedback oh i think it's very important uh, people pick up on stuff you will find that readers who like your work will they love the idea that they'll find something that you didn't mention there's uh between the first the hardcover and the paperback of the dark wing there's a there's a, a two sentence change because somebody pointed out a scientific error <laughs> And I took care of it. That's always fun. <laughs> well, it means somebody was paying attention. Yeah. You like the idea that people are developing an interest in your whole series. Um, but uh, uh, one thing I have trouble with is keeping up and keeping things up to date. In this last portion, we had asked Walter uh, about his inspirations and his, his tips for, for young or uh, experienced writers. Has your wife been a, an inspiration to you, to somebody that, that has shown support, but also helped you, you know, map out characters and, and whatnot? I think you mentioned even that. Uh, Without doubt. Without things. doubt. Every book that I've written has her in the dedication. Um, she's in every dedication, including the new one. Wouldn't, I wouldn't be the writer I am, nor would I be, uh, nor would I be as uh, successful if it were not for, for my wife. No question about it. <laughs> every uh, every writer should have a should have a person as supportive as as my my wife. 
uh, I'm very, very, very fortunate. The backbone, the, the structure that you have around you as a writer is very important to, to telling stories, but also um, some, somebody to kind of nudge you when, when you get to those moments when you can't come up with the elevator's pitch or the elevator pitch was too long or the story just wasn't working out right. You need somebody to bounce it off of, but you know, somebody that's going to be honest with you without having to worry about uh, are, are you going to talk to them the next day? <laughs> Well, she has uh, she's provided lots of great input, and, and she will sometimes have the one thought that's, that I need. But it's not always the case. Yeah. I mean, she doesn't always succeed in giving me giving me the information I need, but often she does. And the number of times she's she's made one suggestion that has turned out to be brilliant uh, is sufficient to to more than compensate for the times that that she suggested something that I didn't want to use. I. It, it, she's she's helped me out lots of times. Do you have any advice for for either young writers who are just starting out, experienced writers who are are thinking of going the traditional publishing path, not traditional? Um, any advice for 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 writers in general uh, at this well, point? First, credibility in the publishing industry is based on is based on being published by an actual publisher rather than being self published. Um, generally, for fiction at least. If you can't sell it to someone, then it may not be good enough to bother to read. And that's a, that's a perception rather than my you know my opinion about anything, because I've read some things that people who publish from themselves, and they're very good. I mean, uh, Sharon Lee and Steve Miller, who, who, who wrote professionally, wound up doing chapbooks of stories, and they kept themselves visible for a long time, waiting for the, the opportunity to get... Um, to get themselves uh, back to where they wanted to be. Uh, so, but generally speaking, before you self-publish, you should try to find something you can sell because that has that has value as credibility. Uh, the second thing is, nobody buys three chapters in an outline if you're unpublished. Yeah. Finish the finish the book. You have to finish the book. If you if the book isn't finished, you don't have anything to sell. So I think that's a that's a very important piece because you know so many authors today think, or writers think that just because they have the 15 minute of fame piece on American Idol or some of the other uh, reality TV shows these days is that they they just need the idea and then somebody else will come along and buy it. Uh, th- those don't happen very often. No, they don't. Uh, you have to you have to sell something. You have to be successful before you can before you can sell an idea. I'm in the position of being able to pitch something I haven't finished, but uh, but as a first-time writer, you have to sell something you have finished, because if you don't, it, it, you don't you don't get an audience. Your your elevator pitch isn't worth anything uh, a priori. You have to you have to have something finished. They say even if they're not yeah even even if you even if they they won't look at it all even if they only want to look at the first three chapters. You have to have all of the chapters in order to, um, in order to sell the editor on the idea of looking at. So plan on, you know, plan on uh, on having something finished. Finish the book. I think that's a that's a Neil Gaiman suggestion as well. Yes. Yes. Finish the book. Finish something. Lastly, Walter shares with us who's been important in his writing career, but who has also been uh, the most important figures in his life. The people who have been very good to me in the in the field are Jack McDevitt and uh, Rob Sawyer. 
Uh, Jack's a tremendous guy, great writer, very, very capable. And uh, Rob is the guy who wrote the pull quote of my first book. And uh, we've been we've been very good friends since he since his uh, since the first book came out. Rob's a Canadian science fiction writer, so naturally Canada so Canada is always uh, always in the books. Um, when everybody somebody says to me, "You're seeing your book on the shelf," that's the coolest thing. And I say it, it's a very solid number three. It's after meeting my wife and seeing my daughter get born. Those two things don't get replaced. This kid's got ahead of getting into college. So it's, it's definitely number three now. Uh, but it's a, if, if there's any question of perspective, um, absolutely, other than my wife and daughter, it is truly the most wonderful thing I've had a chance to do in my life. If I were a writer, I'd probably be a teacher. I don't know what will happen you know, in the future, but for the moment, I'm content to write and and try to do my best. And I just hope I'm not crushed under the under the wheel. You know, I I hope I get to continue to write. That was a conversation we had with Walter Hunt. Uh, we encourage you to check out his books and a little bit about uh, where his upcoming events are going to be held at www.walterhunt.com. This episode is sponsored by My Skill Center. We bring your personal and professional enrichment through leadership development programs, soft skill training, career pathing, and strategic and training measurements. Grow your stories for the future. We're going to end today with a short story prompt for you. It's uh, going to be science fiction based, obviously, uh, but uh, hopefully get those juices flowing and uh, uh, let you exhibit that passion that you all have for writing. It's called Time and Imagination with Technology. It's one of our more popular posts on Story Institute. Uh, We hope you check us out there, www.storyinstitute.com. Time stands still when we do not carry a watch. Time also stands still when we do not know what time it is. We can hide from reality and even put it in places to help us pretend more. However, we cannot dismiss reality when the lights around us signify changes. Tessa went into the home when she was 12 and has not seen others since then. Her room provides all she needs. It is a small, three-section room that changes with Tessa's imagination. When she needs to go outside, she exits through one section and ends up in another, viewing trees and feeling the breeze, all within the comforts of the home. She interacts with the creatures she has drawn or described out loud. A main computer provides the rest. On one particular day, an actual visitor somehow creeps into the room. Who was this visitor? How did Tessa get here in the first place? What is this place, for that matter? How long has it lasted in this location? Who runs the place? Where did this computer come from? How does it recreate the creatures of Tessa's imagination? You, the writer, decides on the path. You decide on the storyline. You decide on the imaginary creatures that enter and exit the space. Decide on your direction. Decide on the story and write. Post it at Story Institute or share it elsewhere, but write and enjoy. Thank you for stopping by Story Institute's Rambling Verser podcast. We hope you enjoyed the show, and we hope you'll visit us again next week. In the meantime, remember to imagine, enhance, and grow your stories. Mm-hmm.